prayer. What is it exactly? Why must we do it? And what's the benefit of it? What's in it for us? We're going to talk about all that and more today on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again. You're listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, November the 29th of 2010, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast today. Thank you for joining us. It is a blessing to us to have you here with us. We are truly blessed to have each one of you here. As a matter of fact, uh, I wanted to share this with you guys today. We just passed our 5 millionth downloaded message uh, just a couple days ago. So praise the Lord for that. And that's because uh, you guys join us week in and week out uh, as we go through the book of Romans. Or, uh, you know, we've done a lot of studies here on the podcast, but Romans seems to be kind of our, our main one. But I did want to remind you guys that uh, that next month, actually next week, we're going to be doing our first Q&A lesson. We're going back to the Q&A lessons, and what we're going to do, we're going to try to do these live, like through uh, through phone conversations recorded on Skype. So what we're uh, what I wanted to do was narrow down our focus for each uh, each month's Q&A lesson. And this month, if you have a verse or a passage that you're uh, that you're having trouble understanding. Uh, go ahead and shoot me an email, cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com, or you can email me on Facebook if you're following me on there. But yeah, let's uh, let's do a Q&A lesson. Um, so far, we have only received one question. One question. Now, um, that's really not enough to do a whole Q&A lesson on. Uh, so I guess this is kind of the kind of the, the litmus test here to see if this is a, a make or break type of thing. I guess if we don't get any questions, uh, we'll just continue with Romans. But I'm hoping to get some questions from you guys. I'd really love to, to bring back the Q&A lessons. Those were some of my favorite lessons back in the day uh, when we were doing more apologetics, a little bit more um, apologetics instruction on was it Wednesdays and, and Fridays or something like that. Wednesdays and then we moved to Fridays. Something like that. But anyway, if you have a question, get it to me. Let's talk about it. I also wanted to remind you guys that this month, and there are a couple days left in the month, we're doing a promotion with William Lane Craig's new book called On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. Everybody who makes a one-time gift of $30 or more is going to get a copy of this book, or you can sign up through PayPal to make regular monthly uh, donations to help support our ministry. We are a listener-supported ministry, and we depend on you guys. So everybody who signs up to be a regular monthly or weekly supporter of BibleStudyPodcasts.org is going to get a copy of this book also. So if you want to make a donation to help us continue in our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and on the right-hand side, you can click on the support box, and you'll see both options on that page. Oh, and one final announcement, and that is, uh, just a reminder for you guys, if you live in Washington State, I'm going to be preaching at Linwood 
Evangelical Free Church on December 19th. So if you're in the Seattle-Tacoma area, if you're uh, within a reasonable distance from Linwood, uh, Linwood Evangelical Free Church, I'll be preaching there on December 19th. It would be great if some of you guys could show up. I'd love to meet you guys. Anyway, we do have a lesson to do here, so let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that we have this time set aside to learn more about you and about your word. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, that five million downloaded messages later, we're still up and running. We're still bringing your word around the world. And so I pray, Lord, that today you would teach us more about yourself, teach us more about ourselves as well, Lord, and how we can relate to you. Draw us closer to yourself during this time, Lord, for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the foundational elements of any relationship is communication. Communication is something that goes way, way beyond the bonds of blood relationships. And while it's been said that blood is thicker than water, blood is no substitute for, nor is it an equivalent of, communication. Now, we all know that uh, the man who gets a, a woman pregnant, for example, and leaves her before she has her child might be a biological father, but when the child grows up without knowing him, he'll be regarded as, yeah, the father biologically, but not the daddy, because part of being a daddy is being there for your children and knowing them intimately. But lack of communication between a child and parent can be caused by the child as well. In the story of the prodigal son, for example, the younger son makes up his mind to run away from home, basically, to leave his father, effectively severing communication with him. Now, I don't know if there's a culture in the world in which children don't run away thus essentially doing the same thing. But I think that we can all recognize that regardless of the cause of a loss of communication between a parent and child, regardless of who's to blame, there's a great deal of pain on the behalf of at least one party. Why? Because we value communication. Lack or loss of communication is also one of the primary causes of divorce, according to some statistics provided by various counseling services. In fact, I would have to argue, uh, I'd have to say that it's the primary cause of divorce. Now, you'll find that a lot of people will say that it's financial stress that causes uh, the divorce of most marriages, or that it's infidelity or emotional abuse. When people don't know what the cause is, they'll give it the generic title of irreconcilable differences, but look at all the reasons that you can possibly find for divorce, and at the heart of each one of those reasons is a breakdown in communication. On the flip side, however, if you look at the healthiest marriages, you'll find that communication is strong. It's foundational between the husband and the wife. When an issue arises, they talk about it, and they sort through it together. It's communication that resolves any and every other possible issue which could cause a husband and wife to divorce, because without communication, we feel alone. We feel unloved, and perhaps rightfully so. After all, if one person doesn't want to communicate with the other, what's to demonstrate that heartfelt love for and that interest in the other person? Well, here in our study of Romans, Paul has given us a set of several instructions which are to characterize us, characterize our lives now that we are in Christ. If our desire 
is to grow in our walk with Jesus more fully, we'd be wise to take note of these things and to incorporate them into our daily lives. These are the qualities that pave the road to Christ-likeness. And God's desire is that we all learn to walk in them and by them, and that we do so by learning to rely on the leading and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. First, Paul told us to love without hypocrisy. Second, he told us to be devoted to loving fellow believers. Third, we are instructed to give preference to one another over ourselves, which is basically what it means to love. Uh, Fourth, we are instructed to be diligent in serving the Lord with the proper attitude. Fifth, sixth, and seventh, Paul instructed us, writing here in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Now, we saw in our previous lesson that rejoicing in hope and persevering in tribulation were closely connected, since the reason that we can persevere in tribulation or persecution is because we're rejoicing in hope. The reality, however, is that we'll be able to do neither of these things if we're not first devoted to prayer. Now, I truly appreciate that Paul tells us to be devoted to prayer. I love that. Devoted to prayer. If he had just said, pray, and left it at that, you know, we might not see, at least in the context of this particular passage, exactly how crucial, how important prayer is. There are entire books out there, scores of volumes of books that have been written on how critically important prayer is, and to be honest, I I just won't even try to cover the subject of prayer as broadly as some of the books that are out there. At the same time, however, I want us to discuss the importance of prayer and to take a look at what prayer is and is not. When I was overseas on uh, on my mission in Moldova, I honestly had no idea what to expect when we first started going into churches to minister. But I'll never forget the first service I was in. Uh, in America, when we have time for prayer in a church service, it's typically kind of our time for reflection, uh, you know, a time for reflective prayer, meaning that we pray silently by ourselves. In Moldova, however, when they prayed, everyone prayed. And I mean, they prayed out loud. They didn't pray silently. Instead, it was it was very loud, and it was long. After sitting through these types of prayers a few times, and as I started to pick up on the Romanian language, and so I could understand what they were saying a little bit, I started to notice something. I noticed that people were generally reciting the same things or thing over and over. Not only that, but the volume got progressively louder and louder as a handful of people, uh, usually just like three or four men, would try to pray louder than anyone else in the room. And I came to see that, at least for some of the people there, it was really more of a competition about who could pray the loudest and the longest. The fact is, however, that there are plenty of Christ followers who have misconceptions about prayer, both there and here, everywhere. People do have misconceptions about prayer. Imagine having a conversation with someone who continually says the same thing over and over, or louder and louder. Would you feel like they were really trying to communicate with you? Probably not. At least, I know I personally wouldn't. But we in America often tend to do the exact same thing. You know, I've been in churches in which the only prayer that you'll hear every week is the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not knocking the Lord's Prayer. I love the Lord's Prayer. Don't get me wrong. But I'd have to believe that the Lord's Prayer is more of a model of how we should pray than what we should pray. And it absolutely shouldn't be the only thing that we pray. 
In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, this is where we start to find the Lord's Prayer. Luke tells us that Jesus had just finished praying, and one of the disciples had come up to him and asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. After all, noted the disciple, John the Baptist had taught his followers how to pray, and so they wanted Jesus to do the same thing. And this is where the Lord's Prayer comes in. Jesus says, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's just stop there. So if this is really just a a guide for how to pray and not to pray, so if we're not intended to just recite the Lord's Prayer from memory, word for word, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think that Jesus was simply telling us, modeling for us, that our first priority in prayer is to acknowledge who God is and to recognize that God is holy, set apart, and above us. And as such, we should be humble in spirit when we pray. Now, before someone says, but the Bible says to pray boldly, I'm not disagreeing with that. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But we also find a reason to be humble in this verse, that being our need to receive mercy and grace. Now, when I say that we should be humble in spirit when we pray, what I mean is just that we need to recognize that he's God and we're not. We're in no position to be making demands. We're in no position to be setting expectations on God because God is sovereign. We can draw nearer to the throne of grace with confidence, however, because we know that God will hear our prayers. Now, back to the Lord's Prayer, we find that the next thing Jesus prayed was, your kingdom come. Uh, For whatever reason, Luke omitted the words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but Matthew did include them uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. See, once we acknowledge who God is, we have no choice if we really recognize who he is, but to yield to his sovereign plans, his sovereign will. Our greatest desire as followers of Christ, should be to see God's will being carried out right before our very eyes, right here on earth. And this is something that even Jesus modeled. On the night of his betrayal, he prayed something very similar to this, when he pleaded with the Father for there to be another way for him to accomplish the Father's will for him on earth. But then he added some very critical words to that request. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So once we acknowledge who God is, we should remember that even though we bring our requests to him, our place is to yield and to seek his will and his ways. Next, Jesus prayed, give us this day our daily bread. So first, we acknowledge who God is. Second, even though we bring requests before him, we yield to his will because third, we recognize, as Jesus did when he prayed this, that because God is sovereign, he has everything under control and he'll provide us with our every need. Our problem oftentimes, however, is that we confuse our wants with our needs. God may not give us what we want, but he will give us what we need. He's promised us that much. And this flies right in the face of the false gospel of prosperity, which teaches that God will give you whatever it is that you want. You want to be rich? He'll give it to you. You want to have a big old house? He'll give it to you. They'll say that God wants you to be happy. He wants you to materially be prosperous. No, he doesn't necessarily. He wants you to love him 
above everything else, and He'll do whatever needs to be done to keep your heart and your mind focused on Him. Time and time again, the Bible warns us about the dangers of material prosperity, the dangers of money, because it's the number one thing that can come between us and God. Money and material are God's greatest competitors for our hearts, and He knows it. We should realize that as well. We're in sin if we expect God to be like this cosmic slot machine that's going to pay off every time we pull. If we've already got a proper understanding of who he is, though, and and who we are, that won't be the way we see and treat him. We won't be treating him like this vending machine or this slot machine. You know, I was recently watching a debate between a team of atheists and a team of Christians And one of the atheists brought up the argument that if God is real, he should restore the limbs of amputees. He noted that he's never seen a single war veteran grow a lost limb back as a result of prayer. And his argument, in other words, is that when we ask God for something, cha-ching, it should be money in the bank. However, first of all, God created a natural universe. He created laws of a natural universe. If he performed a tangible, empirically verifiable miracle every single time we asked for it, it would no longer be a miracle, since a miracle is, by definition, a one-time act of God which is contrary to the laws of nature. So if we blame God for not answering prayer, not only are we placing expectations on God, which isn't our place to begin with, but we would lose the awe factor. We'd grow used to it, and we'd expect it. We'd demand it. Secondly, a person doesn't need to have a limb restored. Look at someone like Johnny Erickson Tata. She was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident when she was younger. She could have held bitterness toward God because he hasn't restored the use of her body at all. But instead, she sought ways to use her condition for God's glory rather than for her own comfort or convenience. God has blessed and honored her, and her condition became her platform. It's what causes people who are suffering to listen to her. Third, if God were to restore the limbs of amputees, let's think about this. Where would we draw the line with our expectations? Why not also demand that he heal broken bones? Why not also demand that he heal every single cut and bruise that we get? You know, we'd end up blaming God every time we stubbed our toes. Now remember, I'm not saying that we shouldn't bring our wants to God. We should. But while we don't know whether he'll give us our wants or not, we can be assured that he will give us what we need. He will provide for us. That's part of us trusting him because sometimes only he knows what it is that we really need. We don't always know what we need, but he does. And that trust should be reflected in the way that we pray. Next, Jesus prayed, And forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, there's a toughie. That's one of those things that should cause us to stop and contemplate, stop and think. Have we done to others the very thing that we're asking God to do for us? You know, this isn't always easy. Sometimes it feels impossible to forgive people. But what does it really mean to forgive in a biblical sense. Well, it doesn't mean to forget. I can 
say that much. Uh, it would be easier if we could just forget, right? But that's not how we were designed. We don't forget painful experiences. Instead, we tend to remember painful experiences more vividly than painless experiences. We learn from painful experiences. We learn behaviors that will hopefully and ideally help us to avoid the same painful experiences in the future. So what does forgiveness entail if it doesn't mean forgetting? Simply put, uh, forgiveness is a financial term, which means that the debt is canceled. Let's say that a friend of mine asks if he can borrow some money from me, say a hundred bucks or whatever. Of course, borrowing implies paying me back, but what if he's not able to pay me back? What if that hundred dollars is something that he can just never afford to give back to me? Or what if he forgets that he borrowed the money from me to begin with? Well, I can do one of two things. I can hold that debt or I can release it and just say, you know, no big deal. I'm not going to worry about him paying me back. In other words, I can just write it off as a loss. And that's exactly what God has done for us because he knows that we're not capable of paying him back. When we sin against him, we can't compensate for it. He doesn't literally forget what we've done, but he writes it off, which enables us to continue in a relationship with him as if he has forgotten it. So the next thing that we should be praying for is, first of all, that God would forgive us of our sins. Prayer is a time when we can confess our sins and shortcomings, and that flows naturally out of our acknowledgement that he's God and we're not. And secondly, we should then pray that our relationships with others are a reflection of our relationship with God. Now, Luke records uh, Jesus ending his prayer by praying, and lead us not into temptation. Will God lead us into temptation? Well, sure he will. In the first few verses of uh, the fourth chapter of Matthew, we see that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. We should remember what James wrote, though. He wrote, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. That's from James chapter 1, verse 13. Now, is this a contradiction? Not at all. It's saying two different things here. God himself doesn't tempt us. Rather, if we're following closely after him, he'll lead us to places which will stretch us, which will test us from time to time. We'll go through what we call the refiner's fire. That's a place that's outside, far outside of our comfort zone, where we learn that on our own, we continue to be weak and frail. It's a place where we're taught to rely more and more on him. And yet Jesus is telling us that it's a place that we should dread going. He's basically telling us that we should be mindful of our weaknesses, of the things that cause us to sin, and that we should actively desire to avoid situations in which our desire to sin and the opportunity to sin intersect with each other. A.W. Tozer once said, It's because of the hasty and superficial conversation with God that the sense of sin is so weak and that no motives have power to help you hate and flee from sin as you should, end quote. See, if we're engaging in real conversation, real dialogue with God through our prayers, we'll be aware of our tendency to sin and we'll bring that before him, asking that he teach us to recognize, to hate, and to avoid our sin. Now, while Luke concludes uh, the Lord's Prayer on that note, Matthew records Jesus concluding his prayer by asking God to deliver us from the evil one. See, our heart's desire 
should be holiness, Christ-likeness. But we have an enemy who seeks to frustrate us and to render us fruitless, which is the result of not abiding in Jesus. If we're not abiding in Jesus, we're not fruitful. We don't have authority over Satan, but God does. The things that Satan might want to do to us are limited by what God allows him to do to us. This prayer follows naturally and logically from the desire to not be led into temptation. Our prayer should always be to be delivered from the power and the presence of sin. And it's something that God, and only God, is capable of doing. Now, again, I'm not knocking the Lord's Prayer. I'm not saying that we should never recite it. But I would encourage you, friends, I would encourage you not to let the words of any prayer, this prayer or another prayer, slip off your tongue as a ritual that you don't even think about, something that you don't give a second thought to. Think about what you're saying. Make it meaningful. That will help you to keep your prayer life from going stagnant. And that's the worst place for it to go if it gets stagnant. Prayer is more than just a quick blessing before a meal. And it's more than just a quick hello and goodbye before you go to sleep at night. It's our lifeline. It's our time to fellowship with God. So with that in mind, Paul encouraged the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. That's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. And we'd be wise to take that advice and apply it to our own daily lives as well. It requires a deliberate, conscious effort on our part. But that's the point, right? If it's our method of communication with God, and it is, then how dare we neglect prayer for even one day. Can you imagine what would happen if a husband would only talk to his spouse for a few minutes on Sunday mornings? Would he fall deeper and deeper in love with her by communicating so infrequently with her? Or would his mind wander? We all know what the answer to that is. See, if we love God, we should be talking to him, dialoguing with him regularly, and get in the word regularly, memorizing verses and passages that speak to us so that we can regularly listen to him. Let prayer be the foundation of everything you do, everything. As Martin Luther once said, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So with that said, friends, let me encourage you to do exactly what Paul is saying here and be absolutely and unequivocally devoted to prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you that you have given us a way of drawing closer to you in our daily lives. We thank you that you are our strength, our sustenance, that you have given us everything that we need, Lord. I pray that you will help us learn to communicate with you, not only more regularly, but in a way that transforms our lives, Lord, that leads us to Christ-likeness. Teach us to have prayer as the foundation for everything that we do, and by doing that, that we would avoid sin and become more and more like your son. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much that you've given us this time. We thank you that you've called us to be your children and that you love us the way a daddy loves his children. Thank you so much for this time. We pray that you will bless it. We pray that you will preserve this message for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. 
But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Jesus.